Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 45, Falling Back in Love with Clinical Practice. My guest, Anna Stratus, MD, is a Canadian-trained family physician with a passion for working with people in communities and improving health care and quality of life. She has a broad spectrum of experience in adult and pediatric primary care. Dr. Stratus has practiced in Canada and the United States. She volunteered at a New York City hospital during the COVID-19 crisis in the spring. She recently went back to Canada for some clinical work and shares her experience in practicing medicine in Canada and the U.S. Dr. Anna Stratus, welcome back to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. It's wonderful to be back. So you were moved from Canada to the U.S., and now you're in Canada practicing medicine. What prompted you to move back? Yeah, great question. So I moved to the U.S. in 2017, and I had two full-time clinical jobs. I think I uh, put in my time, got the T-shirt, um, and as I think I mentioned in my last uh, guest appearances, I really burnt out. I burnt out of medicine. I was exhausted. I was uh, run ragged with uh, hours of paperwork after a 10-hour shift. You know, I remember I had to drive 80 miles one way to get to work. And I remember being back, you know, 10 p.m., 80-mile uh, drive, and uh, I'd be almost falling asleep. And it, I was just so ragged. So I, I had left medicine, and then I, I said, you know, let's let's try to go back to Toronto for, you know, a couple months at a time, back to Canada, and just see if I can practice clinically. And, you know, do I hate medicine, or is it possible that I may love it again? So, um September 1st, I started here. Of course, I did a two-week quarantine, but um, I absolutely, I fell back into clinical practice up here in Canada, and I'm, I'm, I'm in love again. I'm loving patient care. Um, the documentation is so, so minimal compared to what I was doing, and I, it's actually me with patients. It's, you know, there's not a bunch of bureaucrats getting in the way of me and patients, and I, I realized I didn't burn out of medicine. I burnt out of clinical care in the bureaucracy in the U.S. Well, you anticipated my next two questions, but I want to at least explore one of them in depth. Mm. And, you know, now that you're a doctor in Canada again, do you find it easier to practice medicine in Canada than the U.S.? And I think that answers obviously yes. <laughs> so yes. But oh, yeah. Yeah. What I'd like you to yeah. explore is, um, have you noticed this well, have you noticed differences in care for patients between Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I'm, I'm trying to kind of put myself in a patient's shoes right now um, and to try to figure out what they would notice. Um, I think here's the thing. So so when I drove up, I, and, you know, this is maybe a little rosy and rainbows and stuff, so bear with me. But when I drove up and I actually drove up into Toronto and I you know, I hadn't been here for three years. Um, I was just driving to my 
quarantine place of residence. And as I was seeing people on the street, there was just sort of a lightness of people just running around on their bikes, walking on the sidewalk. And I realized every single one of you has healthcare. And not just a really crappy plan with a $6,000 deductible that covers nothing. I'm talking full healthcare where you don't have to pay co-pays. And it was just, I was like, oh my God, the atmosphere is different. People are not sitting around wondering about getting sick or getting hurt or getting injured. Um, so, and then, you know, with me in practice, I think um, what patients, you know, if, if, if patients, if, if I need them to come in, and of course, quarantine, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, phone visits, but if I need them to come into the clinic, they say, oh, what do I bring? I said, well, a mask and oh yeah, your, your health card. But the health card is a provincial health card. Like, I mean, I'm sure if they didn't bring it, it would be fine because it's like, whatever, <laughs> everyone has insurance, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, I, and I don't want to be lazy fair about that. It's not that you can't bring your health card, but it's just the, the, the first question that you get when you call a doctor's office in, in, in America is, what's your insurance? Here, that's not the first question you get. And then, you know, when they see me and I need to order blood work and x-rays and that sort of thing, we're not pricing out every option. We're not saying, oh, no, you don't have coverage. Oh, I got fired last week. I got laid off. My benefits don't kick in until December. Oh, well, I guess maybe that, you know, uterine cancer is going to have to wait until you get insurance. There's, we don't have to go through those hoops. Um, and even, you know, it's funny, people think, oh, there's such long wait times for things. Um, you know, there was a gent who's been in a, who was in a bad car crash and had some concussion symptoms. And I was just going to do a repeat CT of his head. And I just checked my results yesterday. He got the CT within the week. And, you know, I, I would have had to have Traveled an insurance company for six weeks for that thing down in the U.S. Um, so the the perception that the the wait times in Canada are just this grinding long. I, um, uh, it's it's. Anyways, I I'm I'm just back. It's just such a more sensible, relaxed system. And and I'm seeing the fancy medical buildings. There's been a lot of development and growth since I was here. And there's a big fancy medical building, and it looks like kind of a fancy private like New York Presbyterian building, but there, you know, there's cutting edge research here going in in Canada. There's, you know, this particular building houses a bunch of like specialized chronic disease and research and so forth, but it is all publicly available. Like anybody could walk in with a health card and ac access that care. One of the things that I mentioned in my last interview with you is that every doctor I've interviewed our medical providers said, oh, they have to find insurance companies to get the necessary treatment. Do you find that you have to fight to get what you consider the necessary treatment for patients in Canada? I'm going to say no, and, and, and I am in a spot of privilege because we're in Toronto, so obviously the, the access here is, is quite good. Uh, but no, I'll say this. So my usual conversation in terms of getting folks in whether it's to specialists or whether it's to getting in, them into imaging and so forth. Um, I don't actually, the great thing is I don't have to fight insurance. I never have to fight insurance. Um, it's always a matter of helping, of determining how fast does this person need to be seen? And if they need to be seen, how do I make the system work for them? So I'll take an example of a, of a young girl who is having a big issue with swallowing. She's not keeping down solids. And I've spoken to, I spoke to her three weeks ago, her, her mom, and I spoke her, to her mom again yesterday. And 
And and this kiddo, unfortunately, is not doing well. For there's something going on where she's just not able to swallow, and she's she's starting to not thrive. And she has an appointment for a scope on the 14th of October. But I I said, look, yes, you have an appointment time, but that's that's for the average situation where things aren't going poorly. If you need to be seen, we're going to go into the emergency department, but because that is going to. And I advised her. I said, look. The emergency department is for serious emergencies where things are not going well and we need to see you now and we need to bump up treatment. And so what I find is I'm often working with folks to say, okay, well, here's the wait time, but here's how I can make my power as a family physician work to get you. If I feel you need care, I'm, 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 we're going to work together to get you seen faster. So it's just a matter of helping folks negotiate the system. And that sounds very tiresome, but I just, I see it work so well, you know, for, you know, instances of breast cancer. If, if I, if I diagnose breast cancer, if I diagnose cervical cancer or whatnot, people are into the best center treatment centers within a week and it's no questions asked care. So I don't, I don't want to paint a rosy picture. I know that there's exceptions to this. There's of course in rural communities, there's always going to be access issues, but um, I'm not fighting insurance companies. Um, I'm helping people navigate where there's queues and I, and I'm helping people who need to be seen faster just like you know you're in an airport and you're in a security line the people who need who whose flights are leaving now they're going to be pulled out of the line and they're going to be brought up to the front and that it it's probably the most sensible way to run a healthcare system i know that's in in my in my opinion when since i've seen the american system um this is the best way to run a system well that brings me up to another point and you touched on it to some degree, but if you were describing to the layperson why it's better to be a doctor in Canada from the patient's point of view, what would you say? Mm. So, as a doctor in America, I was a cog in the wheel. I was a nameless cog in the wheel where my bosses and my the people I had to answer to were all non-medical CEOs and business people. And the, and the pharma industry and the uh, insurance industry. And there was a massive wall between me and the patient. I was answerable to the bean counters. Um, and the amount of running through hoops that I had to do for the bean counters ran me ragged. And, and also, I went to medical school to treat patients. I, I didn't go to medical school to, uh, to sit in a desk and run paperwork. Um, so, so as, as a doctor in America, I burnt out because I couldn't handle being answerable to money, to people, to shareholders. I want to be answerable to patients. That's why I burnt out. So in Canada, I'm answerable to patients. There's yes, you know, at the end of the day, I submit bills to the government for a patient that I've seen or for a service I've provided. It's a pretty simple process, very quick. Um, but people aren't getting in my way. Um, and I and I do, you know, I, I do have to say that in Canada, the doctor's words still count for a heck of a lot. Like when we speak on behalf of our patients, we're we're respected. And I don't believe that's the case in America. And and you'll notice, and I and I've heard this this is a fact, is that a lot of these big healthcare conglomerates, these big brand name uh, hospital systems or clinics. Their emphasis is twofold. Number one, they're wanting to push out physicians because it's cheaper to 
um, have a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. And by the way, they're amazing. Nurse practitioners and physician assistants are amazing. I've worked with them. I'm good friends with them. They do very good care. But the American system is trying to push out physicians and and bring in folks who they can pay less. Um, and so all they're also trying to do is they're not they're trying to dissociate the American image of the doctor by name. They're trying to depersonalize the doctor so that you it's, so the doctors are like a replaceable widget in the machine. So they don't want you to know your doctor's name. They want you to know the healthcare uh, organization name, uh, Mercy Hospitals or whatever that is. So up here in Canada, I'm still the doctor. The, the most important name is my name. They don't really care which, which clinic they're calling. It's, it's my name that, that they care about. So I feel proud of my profession up here in Canada. I feel like I'm making a difference. That translates to being proud of the professional responsibility to patients. Um, when I'm serving patients, my license, my reputation, and my heart is on the line up here in Canada. It's a deeply personal experience to be involved in patient care up here in Canada. I would add one other thing, and I think you touched on this before. But in Canada, as a general rule, there's no problem getting the care or treatments that you want for your patients, correct? That's correct. And I think that's an important point. So now Abs I have... Absolutely, that I'm not like running ragged trying to get something that I know my patient needs and that I'm having to fist fight a, a bureaucrat for. <laughs> exactly. As you know, you can spend hours or days fighting an insurance company in the U.S. The last time you were interviewed, I asked you if the paperwork's quicker in Canada. So how long does it take you to do average paperwork for a patient? You know, seconds, minutes, hours, as compared to the U.S., which could take hours or days. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Very minimal. Um, so, yeah, about, you know, three to five minutes uh, per patient that I'm seeing. And I'm, you know, I'm not in a full service family practice, and that can get quite complicated. There's a lot more paperwork that happens in a, in a full service family practice where folks provide longitudinal care. But for me, you know, at the end of a shift, if I see 25 folks, you know, I may have at most an hour of paperwork afterwards, which is, you know, not four hours, which I have usually encountered. Um, and the thing is, too, is that there's my experience of paperwork in the U.S. was I was getting massive amounts, like 100 or 150 documents of, of labs and other nonsense paperwork, um, authorizations. Um, insurance forms, you know, every single physiotherapy note that a person went for, they would have to get me to sign off on their physiotherapy progress notes. Um, a whole bunch of nonsense things for insurance um, that I'd be doing for people I'd, I hadn't even seen that day. So um, just there's none of that. There's, there's none of the nonsense, um, you know, stuff coming off the fax machine that is just utterly uh, ludicrous. Um, everything that I'm signing up in your Canada makes sense. Just, just the basics. Um, so I, I find that the paperwork burden is just so light. It's really the, 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 the big thing that is, that I was taking my time is making sure that my note is documented so that I know what I did for a patient and that the plan is well documented. So another doctor can come into their chart and follow up care. And that's my main responsibility to my patient is making sure that I document their visit really well. Um, and then any of the other documentation is just 
just a dr- like honestly a dream compared to the to, to my uh, experience in the U.S. And you bring up an important point. In Canada, you can share medical records if you need to, something that is very hard to do in the U.S. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. I mean, and it's funny. You can always tell a doctor who's worked in the U.S. because our HIPAA compliance or awareness is just really uh, bonkers. Um, I, I would say we still hold private health information private, personal health information private. Um, it's just not so asinine. And I, and I should say, too, so the HIPAA compliance, the HIPAA laws are, are good laws, but the interpretation of that, because of fear of being sued in the U.S., that's what makes it ridiculous, is a lot of our difficulties and hoops that we've set up because of HIPAA laws are a misinterp or an overinterpretation of the law. HIPAA was never meant to get in the way of patient care. We're, we should be able to share results between specialists, right? Like anybody who's involved in, the, in a patient care, we shouldn't require to do release of information at every step when a patient has said, yes, please refer me to so-and-so. We shouldn't therefore then have to turn around and get the patient to sign a release of information to release the their documents to so-and-so because they've already said, I want a referral to so-and-so. You know what I'm saying? So um, up here in Canada, if we need to send stuff off to specialists and so forth, it's not this ridiculous, um, you know, circus. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit and ask, do you think that COVID-19 patients get better care in Canada or the U.S.? Ah, good question. So it's two-pronged. Number one, the best care is prevention. So a society that keeps their COVID rates low is 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 succeeding. And, and that's what Canada is doing um, because they've got a single message across the country, sensible. They don't have, you know, leaders uh, whipping off their masks when they come out of hospital with COVID infection. Um, so, so it's very sensible. The rates are relatively low. Yes, we're having a bit of a spike here in Ontario, but a spike is like 700 cases across the province. That's that's what's considered, you know, dire up here in Canada. Um, and then in terms of, of patient care, absolutely. So if you do test positive for COVID, we have enough resources and everybody has the same insurance coverage. And I was talking to my my um, my roommate here, who's a dietitian at one of the big hospitals here in Toronto. And I was telling her my experience in in um, in Brooklyn in, in April. And I said, look, well, above 90 percent of my of folks on ventilators were dying. And she said, oh, that was not the experience here. It did not sound like people were dying of COVID at the same rates as they were down in the U.S. And so, you know, and then, of course, you know, the overall baseline health status here up here in Canada is is far different. You don't have, I have not prescribed insulin since I got here. Now, I'm not saying that there's not diabetes. Of course, there's diabetes and all, and all the chronic lifestyle conditions. There's nowhere near the amount of diabetes and uh, heart failure and, and, and kidney failure that there is in the U.S. Because, you know, access to nutrition and, and fair education and, and so forth is, is more of a value here. People are on, on I'm not going to say that there's equity across uh, Canadian society, but people are more on the same footing than they are in the U.S. in terms of their baseline health status. And as we know, COVID targets folks who have poor underlying health. I may regret asking you this question, but I can't resist, especially since you mentioned somebody whipping their mask off after they got out of the <laughs> hospital. 
<laughs> but what do you think it says about the U.S. pandemic response that Donald Trump got COVID-19? Well, you know, listen, a head of state is allowed to also get sick um, in a global pandemic. So, you know, my prime minister's wife got sick and he quarantined, etc. Um, what it says, I find this as to be absolutely devastating for the American people, because the second he got sick, I knew that, number one, he although he chooses to eat hamburgers all the time, he has the white privilege of, of having a good underlying health status. He's had good access to health care all his life. and I knew that he would go to a fancy hospital and he would get all the experimental treatments that the average American does not have. So the remdesivir, the experimental antibody transfusion. He also had the dexamethasone, the steroid and so forth, although that's not special, but it's still he the book was thrown at him. And of course, he walks out of Walter Reed looking great. And so him saying, oh, this is no big deal. I had COVID. Everything's fine. He got care that almost no American would get. And certainly, the people who were dying in the hundreds every day that I saw in hospital in Brooklyn were not getting that care. And it makes it it horrifies me that he's underplaying the deaths of the poor people that I saw and treated, and I had nothing to give them back in April. And he is telling the American people and all of the families of the 208,000 people who died, uh, you're weak, and it's your fault you died. I, I, I am. I feel so strongly about this that he's going to turn this around to say, "Oh well, if you're strong and if you're a person of good character, you're going to survive of COVID." It's 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 honestly devastating. Um, so I know I went on a bit of a rant, <laughs> but um, when this head of state gets COVID, it's it's devastating, and it it says to the what does it say about America? It says that it doesn't care about its own, the weakest of society that that they leave them behind. And I know that America wasn't founded on that. I know that America was founded on uh, freedom for all. And I feel like America needs to shake its head and, and, and get its head back in the game. Because this COVID crisis has, has um, shown how far America has veered away from its founding principles. Well, it may have been a rant, but I think it was a very good and emotional rant. And I think It was emotional. You, <laughs> and I think what you said is absolutely true. So I'm going to ask one more question, give you another chance to rant. But in our last interview, you said the U.S. insurance companies have done a great PR job. Do you feel even more strongly that is true now? Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I hope I'm interpreting your question right. But, but basically, um, American insurance companies sort of fool their, their customers into thinking that they are getting amazing care and that they've got this thing of choice. So something that the insurance companies really trump and, and, and sort of the, the way that they distract Americans from learning more about a single payer healthcare system is this whole thing about choice. Well, like, well, you don't want the government taking your choice away, do you? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I now I'm working in a single payer health system and I ask my patients, which GI specialist do you want to see today? Which hospital do you want to go to? Which, uh, which facility do you want to, you know, where do you want to go get your MRI or your, your blood work done? My patients have all the choice in the world. It's just that every single one of those services are all paid for under one government. And there's not all the nonsense bureaucracy that's, that's stealing all the money um, in, as the middleman. So my patients have a heck of a lot of choice. And they enjoy 
um, a space in a system where healthcare is so much cheaper. Drugs are cheaper. Um, and I, and I do have to say Canada does not yet have a universal pharmacare plan, which is something that we need to get, but you know, the drug prices are just a fraction of what they are in the U S anyways. Um, but my patients have choice. My patients have access. They're not being run financially ragged through healthcare costs. They don't delay care because they know that we'll treat it today because it's important to prevent something from, um, you know, getting worse. I have a whole bunch of people who come in and they're like, well, I just wanted to check this out just in case it could be serious. You know, I, I'm not down the U.S. where there's a woman who has a an invasive cancer that is is literally eating her face off. And she's been living with that for two years. And she just didn't want to get health care because it just was potentially expensive. She didn't know what she would face. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I it's very emotional. The insurance companies in the U.S. have sold their customers a bill of goods. And a single-payer healthcare system is the cheapest way to run a system. It is equitable. It's for everyone. Um, you know, even in a time of a global pandemic, everyone gets the same degree of care for COVID. Uh, it's democratic. It's 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 a human right. Well, I'm not sure that we could add much to that, but I'm going to give you the chance. So before we end, is there anything else you'd like to say or would you like to just, you know, also go on another rant? Your choice. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you know, I think the concern that I have up here in Canada is a lot of Canadians sort of see the most fancy things about the American healthcare system. And it's a threat to undermine our system. The concern that I have about Canada is we're sat right on top of a country that does a very good PR job and really sort of sells a good story. And, and Canadians haven't seen what I have seen in, in the Bronx and in Western rural New York. And they haven't seen the atrocities that patients have had to deal with there. So, you know, I ask, I, you know, I know it's hard for societies to really, you know, if you have a single payer health care system, I know it's hard to ignore the shiny objects that you see, like in the U.S. with the fancy things that are going on at at Stanford and in New York Presbyterian and all that. But you have to understand that it, if you think about undermining your healthcare system and letting the private sector in, the private sector will always, always consider their shareholders first and the patient second. So for societies that don't have a single payer healthcare system, I, I darn well hope that they go in that direction. I'm, that's my hope for America. And for those that have it, keep it. Uh, you don't know the horrors that I've seen. And I, I wish I could kind of download all my experiences to my uh, fellow Canadians or to even folks in Europe. I'm sure, you know, everybody sort of wonders, well, maybe we should just let the private sector do this one part of healthcare delivery. Well, I'm going to say no, it never works out. Private sector is never aligned in the in the care of patients. So a single payer healthcare system, it's hard to stick to. It is the only way. And it's the only way that I want to work. It's the only system I want to work for as a doctor. And it's the only thing I went to medical school for is for fair patient care. I think I'm finished, Joe. <laughs> I'm done ranting. Uh, I think that was great. And Anna, thank you again so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. And thanks for your terrific work. Keep spreading the word. I'll do my best. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.